Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm really excited to share the conversation I had with Helena DeBreeze. Uh, Helena is a professor of philosophy at Wellesley College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. She has her bachelor's in philosophy. She has a, and, and also French. Uh, at the Victoria University of Wellington in Wellington, New Zealand, where she's originally from. She has her PhD in philosophy from MIT, and she did a postdoc at Stanford. So she is well-educated, and she is absolutely bright and very, very, very sharp uh, and with philosophy and thinking about good ideas. Uh, she's When I was having a conversation with her, I, I thought to myself, I said, you know, she would be a wonderful professor. Like to, I mean, she is one, but to, for me, like to, it's like, you know, maybe I'll audit one of her classes. She just has a really nice way of um, talking about ideas, um, big ideas, and really kind of striking at the core of them and understanding how they apply for us. And uh, she's, she's just a brilliant thinker. I really like the way she thinks about things. She can do outside the box thinking. So she's, uh, she's quite lovely. And uh, she is the author of uh, the fabulous book, which is How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. It's out through Bloomsbury. And she talks about, in this book, uh, it's sort of um, kind of uh, autobiographical. It's about, she's, she's a twin, as she describes in the conversation in the book. And she talks about um, being a twin. But really, she looks at that to see big human questions about identity, love, freedom, objectification. And it's really interesting to, to, to use, in her case, her own life and this uh, concept of twins to understand other things about human experience, right? For people that are non-twins. Uh, again, super creative, super wonderful. And uh, I, was, I, I really loved her book and I, I loved the, the conversation. We start the conversation uh, by talking about why we're fascinated by twins. Uh, many people, if they see twins out in, uh, in public, they'll be like, oh, wow, you know, it's in, especially if we're identical twins. Uh, so it's super cool how she kind of just tackles that head on. Like, why, why, why do we find them fascinating? Uh, we talk about what do twins tell us about humanity? Uh, why we do this kind of binary thing with twins? Uh, some of the moral valence we put on that. We spend a lot of time talking about the self and really this idea of the self and identity. And, you know, if you're a twin, that's really kind of an important question of like, yeah, we're, I have someone, especially if you're identical, I'm someone that's you know, very similar to me, but how do I have my own sense of self, my own individuality removed or maybe not from, from a twin? So that, that was, that was a really wonderful part of the conversation. We also talk about the extended mind. Uh, Andy Clark and uh, David Chalmers wrote this paper, and we talk about you know extended mind and, and twins and special connections. Talk about twins and love and dating. Uh, what twins teach us about objectification. Uh, twins and having you know non-twin siblings. So if it's a family of you know four children, and you know there's a set of twins, and then there's you know, maybe one or two other kids there that aren't twins. What is that like? And many other topics. So it was, it was again such a such a fun conversation. She just has this kind of brightness to her, and uh, she's again she's very very wonderful. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com, also on YouTube. So get over there, uh, share, like, follow, contribute. I really really appreciate that. And um, now I bring you Helena Debris. 
I'm here with Helena Debris. Uh, Helena, thanks so much for coming on the uh, podcast. I'm uh, very looking forward to uh, to talking with you. Likewise. Thanks, Xavier. Uh, you've written such a really wonderful book, really, really incredible. It's called How to Be Multiple, uh, The Philosophy of Twins. And um, I am not a twin, but you are. And I didn't know I was going to learn so much about the philosophy of twins until reading your book and how much it applies to the rest of us that are singletons. Uh, so uh, that's a, I'm excited to talk with you all about it. Before we do, can you tell listeners uh, who you are, basically in terms of your professional academic background and uh, what you're currently doing? Sure. Um, so I am a philosophy professor. I teach philosophy at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. Uh, and I'm also a creative writer. I do a lot of memoir and personal essays uh, on the side. So my main thing these days is uh, a mixture of philosophy and personal narrative. I wrote a book called Artful Truths, A Philosophy of Memoir. And this book is, yeah, it, in a way, uh, my first attempt to do a, a lengthy um, memoir of myself that integrates philosophical theory. Yeah, I always, I always, memoirs are interesting because I always feel when I, I've talked to a few people that have done memoirs and I, and I always feel it's like, I always have like more questions and it's like, well, if it's a memoir, people are putting their information out there, but it's like, oh, that always feels personal. So I never like asking personal questions like that about somebody's <laughs> life. So I'm like, oh, I, I never quite know so much. So maybe I'm sure we'll talk about some of your your personal accounts, but uh, you can tell me what, what you want to share and what you don't want to share. Um, okay, so so the book, uh, How to Be Multiple. Um, how, I guess you, you talked about your, your first first book, which I haven't read. I've read this one. I haven't read the first one. I guess what was the kind of main motivation for, for writing this one? Um, I should, we should note, we should note, uh, as I was telling you before we started, that the uh, illustrations in the book are, are by your twin, Julia. So shout out to her. They're fantastic and they're great. So people should buy the physical book and see the illustrations as well. They're, they're, they're quite wonderful. Yeah. And um, yeah, now that you mentioned the illustrations, one of the motivations for this book was that I wanted to do a collaborative project with my twin. Um, so we grew up, you know, in the same house with the same parents. We spent a lot of time in the 1980s, and the 1990s, before there was the Internet, uh, working on projects at home. Um, I wrote a novel when I was 12. She did pictures for it. Oh. So we have a long history, kind of a charming history of doing creative work together. Mm. Um, we're now both professors. She's a sociolinguist. And we mm. both have this kind of creative side gig. So I do creative writing. She does illustration. Mm. Uh, so we've been talking for a while about how we could bring our areas of academic expertise together with our creative projects. And this seemed like a nice way to do it. So that's one motivation. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the other one um, is, I guess, more intellectual. Um, as I was saying just before, I really like bringing together theory and personal narrative in my writing. Um, so I was thinking um, of different ways that I could do that in a longer form, parts of my life that were existentially loaded, I guess you might say. Um, and twins are just a really natural fit. Twins, by their very nature, raise a bunch of different conceptual and ethical and metaphysical questions. So I felt like there was a rich vein to be mined there. Mm -hmm. um, and it'll be fun too. Twins are fun. Everyone loves twins. Yeah, certainly. It's 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 very interesting. I, I know in my personal life, a handful of folks uh, that are twins and they're pretty awesome. Um, so, yeah, so let me ask, why 
why is it that you think that people in general are kind of fascinated by by twins or this idea of, of twinship um you know what what is that you know you talk about it throughout the book and stuff but i'm curious about what do you think it is for for us that you know most people aren't twins so maybe there's the kind of like oh this is different in a kind of cool way um yeah. but what do you think it is the this fascination that people have with with twins yeah, it's a good question. I actually think there are many different answers to it. Um, but um, maybe the more general one is, yeah, the twins aren't just rare. We're definitely rare. Anyone that's unusual is kind of interesting. Um, so we are rare. Um, they're not as rare as we used to be. So non-identical twins are much more common now because of the use of assisted reproductive technology. Um, uh, but we are rare. But we're not just rare. We're also seen as, um, you know, somehow um, sort of odd or freakish, a little bit um, anonymous in a variety of ways. Uh, so I think part of the fascination is a general fascination we have with anyone who falls outside the norm. Um, people who are more in, in the norm can often find people outside the norm illuminating um, because they shed light on you know, what it is to be at the centre as opposed to the margins. So I think um, both in their um, kind of physicality and also in their relationality, Twins seem unusual mm. to singletons. Mm. So that's part of it. Mm. I'll be very honest. <clears throat> uh, I find, so I know folks that are fraternal twins and identical twins. And the identical twins are challenging for me because I'm always having this narrative in my head when I interact with them together of, <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about this, but <laughs> um I, if I'm, if I'm, there's the, there's the, the physical similarities, obviously, right. In terms of yeah. height or facial symmetry or whatever, body type, whatever. Um, that's less interesting to me. I mean, it's kind of interesting to look at someone who looks very similar, but it's more of like, how different are you? Right. Yeah. So like, there's this idea of, of yes, of course you're individuals, right. You're two individuals, but like kind of not right. Like there's like this, there's this like symbiotic kind of relationship. And, and I always wonder, it's like how, how much of that, like wh where's the like uh, divergence with, with twins, both in like their worldview or how they conceptualize. Like I, I get the individual aspect of a person, but like, you know, there's a kind of unique kind of connectedness here. And is there, what is that like when things are, different or there's divergence between the twins. Um, and then like, I guess how it's perceived and that's kind of, I mean, I don't ruminate about this, but it will kind of cross my mind when I'm interacting with, with twins. And I'm like, I wonder how much, obviously they have different ideas about this, but, 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 but why, or <laughs> why, what is it that's different? And it's interesting. I don't, I don't always say it out loud, I guess. Sometimes I'll ask, but I guess it's, it's interesting about that. Is, do you find that this is kind of another way for yourself in terms of being a twin or, or how people perceive you if they don't quite know where, where you guys are similar or different? How, how is that experience? Yeah. I mean, I get it too. I am an identical twin. So I've usually been at the kind of target end of that kind of observation, you know, and interest. But I also do, when I see identical twins, I'm completely fascinated by them. I'm trying to work out what the differences are, how to distinguish them. I think it's, it's unavoidable. Um, it, and it's, yeah, I think... It, sometimes people have the sense that twins are a copy of each other. There's a kind of duplication mm -hmm. um, due to their similarities. Other times there's a sense that twins are somehow 
a single thing that's been split. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much a kind of copy and paste situation, but a a division. Mm. Um, So a lot of the metaphors that are used in, um, you know, novels or movies, literature, art, popular culture, four twins often appeal to one of those two things. There's that long history um, in um, European and and English literature of doppelgangers, Mm -hmm, right, which mm -hmm. is sort of the copy version. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, we twins often are perceived as somehow being less than two people. Mm. Um, And, yeah, it's an interesting question whether there's something to that idea or not. So you you split the book up basically into five chapters or and or essays. I guess they could kind of sit on their own, but um, and you talk about these different ideas. You talk about the ideas of binary identity, selfhood, uh, love, free will, objectification. I guess I'm assuming that there were other potential uh, topics you could have addressed as well with with twins. But I guess what was it kind of about these in particular? Were these the ones that were just the most common or the ones that most interest you? Or were there other reasons for selecting these themes? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually. I mean, the process that I went through was to read a huge amount of material about twins at the beginning. So I spent months um, reading um, stories, you know, twins in literature, watching a bunch of twin movies, also reading stuff in psychology, um, a bit of stuff in behavioral genetics. There's lots of, you know, twin studies in in science. Um, So just reading a lot of material and taking notes when I felt that the author um, was was connecting to some kind of philosophical question. And then I just noticed um, the themes that were occurring the, the most often for me. Um, and these are the ones that leapt out to me. So I'm sure I didn't include some things that um, I could have included, but it felt to me that um, these were the big ones. Mm. Personal identity is almost always brought up when people talk about twins. Um, and one thing that was interesting is I felt that really there were two big questions there, not just one. I mean, I'm sure there are many sub-questions, but the two that leapt out to me, um, one was um, about uh, this question of how exactly you distinguish yourself from another person in terms of kind of qualitative properties. Um, so we often um, have conceive of our own identity in relation to another's identity, mm-hmm. um, and twins do that very much. They're often... Um, divide into two camps. One's the good twin, one's the evil twin, you know, one's the tomboy, one's the kind of girly girl, um, the nerd, the athlete, and so on. So I wanted to talk a bit about um, what it's like to have your identity in a way defined in opposition to someone else. Mm. So that's one personal identity question. But another one is that question we were just touching on before about how to draw the boundaries between Mm -hmm. two people. Mm -hmm. You, you make this claim in the book that, and I, I certainly felt it as well, that these questions that you're raising or, or that are they're, um, rising up here are, they kind of really, they're human questions, right? They make you think about humanity. Like we, we all think about how do we differentiate ourselves from another person or from the other, so to speak. How do we have these ideas of the self or identity or how do we deal with objectification in, in society? Um, especially uh, women in, in society as well. And so all of these themes, it's not that those themes are unique to twins, but the fact that there is a, um, uh, it just looks different, I guess, in some ways, because you can kind of see both. Um, but I thought that was interesting, making that comparison of like, well, it's not just this memoir of, you know, your idea of being a twin, but it's also this idea of, 
well, what does that tell us about humanity? And then there's a kind of bridging there that I found of like, well, they're not so different in some ways, right? I mean, they are, yeah. but in other ways, they're not. <clears throat> yeah, there's a kind of dance I'm doing in the book, which I think is not artificial. It's just the nature of the material. But on the one hand, I want to say, well, twins are, you know, really are unique and special. Like there's something distinctive about us. On the other hand, I think that a lot of the things that I'm talking about, as you're suggesting, also apply in maybe some minor or less obvious or less vivid way to non-twins. Um, so I think twins are, are most useful really as a kind of particularly striking and extreme instance of some of um, the ideas that or questions that I'm talking about. Um, but in each case, I think there's a, yeah, an obvious connection to, um, to non-twins. I really think twins are a helpful way of thinking in general about what it is to be a human. Mm. Uh, so the connections are there. I hope that um, people who read the book and aren't twins can relate to a lot of what, mm. I, what I say, mm -hmm. even if it's twin, um, <laughs> twin focused. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, no, certainly. I mean, again, I'm not a twin, but I definitely, there's a lot of, of, themes I was able to to think about and consider and some I had thought about before, but it was cool to, to think about them in a different way. So it, it does it does do that. And I can imagine that it's a very, um, you know, really you know, kind of a, a confirmatory kind of experience if you are a twin reading the book as well. So that's 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 probably has to be a nice experience, too. You talk about in the first kind of uh, chapter about this idea of how we try to make things into a binary yeah. it, it, and really in all of life, we do that, right? It's a very a kind of a black and white thing or it's this or it's that and either or, and that we do this with twins as well. Could you talk about um, specifically with twins, how that usually comes out? You give examples of the book and stuff, but just how do you, how do you think about why for, you know, <laughs> singletons, people that aren't twins, uh, we have this push to want to try and put it in a kind of binary. Yeah, I kind of canvass a bunch of different possible reasons why we binarize twins and by extension why we binarize other people in the chapter. I think in the case of twins, one is that it's really urgent to try and work out which is which, right? So I think sometimes this really stark polarization of um, identities and personalities is a way of just, it's kind of an overcorrection, right? You have no idea how to distinguish these young kids, especially if they're, you know, identical and they're, they're small. Um, so it helps to try and give them each a role and then in a way sort of persuade them to, to live that role. Mm. So in a way, it's a kind of sorting or identification maneuver. Um, I think that does happen. For instance, in my twinship, uh, my sister and I mainly, I think, um, distinguished along the introversion, extroversion line. I'm the introvert, she's the extrovert. And we were told that very early on. Uh, so there's a kind of, um, you know, sort of a reinforcement of maybe what might be relatively minor differences that come to, um, to play a big role in each twin's sense of themselves that kind of compounds over time. So part of it, I think, really is just that that need to distinguish. Hmm. Um, but then, as you're saying, it's a, it's a common human tendency to binarize across the board. Um, so in a way, you can think of twins as being a kind of lightning rod for that hmm. tendency. Hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that twins can also reinforce the tendency in certain ways. So we're often used um, as figures for other binaries in, um, you know, myth or in, in literature or popular culture. So we're kind of seen as figures and used to work out various questions or to um, play out different value conflicts. Mm. So um, we're kind of a tool um, to further exercise that habit. Mm. 
I think the, the the lesson there is, or the kind of thing you can extract from that is, is we do tend to think of things in binaries. And I wonder, you know, with, with twins doing that, obviously there's the the healthy discrimination, like who is who, right? You know, and that kind of thing. I, yeah. I understand that piece of it, but I, I wonder if there's also another component here of, you know, what's the kind of moral valence of doing something like that? And what's the mm-hmm. moral valence of trying to binarize something or, 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 or someone when there are people involved, right? Where yeah. I guess this sort of ties in with the objectification piece in the last chapter or whatever, towards the end of the book. But there's this idea of sometimes you can't sort things out. Sometimes it is ambiguous. And that's not a good or a bad thing. It just is. Um, I don't know. What do you think about this kind of this moral topspin we put on things in, in terms of how we have to or we feel we have to binarize it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have thought about this quite a bit because I do definitely, as I was just saying, see the mark of this binarizing tendency of my, on my own sense of self. I can see how, how it's definitely formed who I am. I form my sense of myself in relation to my sister, which also happens with siblings. Often one sibling is kind of called the naughty one or the, the sensible one, right? So happens to us all. Um, so in some ways that can be seen as, as troubling, as cramping, right? We all, we contain multitudes and we're somehow participating in the social construction of ourselves is more limited. So there are obvious reasons to worry about that. Um, and if, yeah, if the line being pressed is also um, stigmatizing or negative, you know, if your parents or your family are telling you that you're something that you don't want to be or that's somehow, um, you know, oppressive, that's terrible. So I see the, the dark side. In a way, in the chapter, I wanted to talk a little bit about the good side too, or at least to alleviate some of the concerns there. Um, you know, I think sometimes there's a, this, this sense that what we really want to be is, is our natural selves, right? An abstraction from social pressures, an abstraction from other people's ideas about who we are or what we ought to be. Um, and, you know, I can see the motivation there. But I also think that we shouldn't kind of press it too far because we're all relational beings, right? We do form ourselves in relation to other people. And there's nothing inherently bad about that, Um uh, in fact, there's something beautiful about your own self bearing the trace mm-hmm. um, of the relationships you've had with other people. Mm. So I think, you know, twinship, because it's such an intense connection, it begins from the very first moment um, of life, is, is a, um, a nice way of thinking about how you can have someone um, really pervasively affect your sense of who you are and for that to be a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm. So let's, 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 let's kind of a big, one of the big, I think, chapters and the one that I kind of uh, thought about a lot was this idea of the self. Um, and okay, let me just, let me, let me, let me kind of slightly make this a projective here. How do you define selfhood or how do you define the self or what does that look like for you? Uh, just generally as a construct, and then you can add whatever kind of other ingredients here. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a big question. Um, I think I, I'm quite. Um, I like this idea of the narrative conception of the self that um, has been argued for by Maria Schechtman and also Alexander Neumas. Um So they both talk about ways that um, 
you know, basically you arrive on the planet with a bunch of material. You've got a, a social history, you've got biological features that are you, kind of massive, I guess, um, I don't know, matter. Um, and becoming a self rather than just a biological organism is a matter of selecting from that material and kind of forging or creating an identity. Um, so I think of the self or the, a person as being the result of a constructive process. Um, it's not just about what's given, but what you do with it in concert with other people. Um, and one way you do that is by telling a story that uh, draws together your past and your present and your implied future. Um, so, yeah, I see the self as being partly given, partly constructed, often by the use of some kind of narrative. Um, and you definitely see that happening, I think, in the... Um, in the case of, of twins, as I was just emphasizing, the social aspect is really, is really obvious there. Um, you, you can't really talk about yourself without contrasting yourself with this person who's been so formative for you. Um, and I think part of the, one of the main pictures or main ideas that the book as a whole is trying to get across um, is this idea that we need to resist that, that still dominant, I think, individualistic bias in um, Western culture, which says you're only really sort of healthy, you're only really living a meaningful, fulfilling ethical life if there's sharp boundaries between yourself and others. Um, I don't think that's a realistic way to think about humans, but it's still a popular one. Mm. So twins are a nice example of uh, people who really put some pressure on that ideal. Mm -hmm. So... So, so the first part, I agree. I agree with the the narrative uh, piece as well. Um, you know, I think that I think now. I mean, I, I've had lots of conversations here and and, and not here um, about this idea of the self, and this seems to be pretty pervasive. I think at this point, I think most most people don't have. Uh, I guess maybe unless you're religious or something, you believe there's like a soul or whatever. But I, right. uh, um, outside of that, I guess for secular folks, it is this idea that most people don't believe there's like somebody inside pulling the levers and driving the ship of you. You know, and most people don't believe that. Yeah. I mean, I, I've talked to many people. They just no one really. I don't believe that. A lot of people don't believe that. So that way, the self is sort of illusion, like a kind of a type of illusion. But I would say it's a kind of useful fiction, right? Of <clears throat> You know, even 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 the humanist um, uh, clinician psychologist um, Carl Rogers had you know back in the '50s, '60s this idea of the self as a kind of uh, conglomerate or a kind of merging together of all of our experiences continuously through time. And I think people after him have you know built on that. And I think the narrative piece is a is is helpful. I think it's a useful fiction. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think where some of this starts to kind of break apart a little bit is it kind of, if you go full social constructionist and you say, well, the self, there, there's no constancy, there's no stability per se. It's all dependent on social context. It's all dependent on your social relationships. I don't go that far. I, I've talked with other people that do, and it's a fun conversation. I think there are elements of our our temperament or our personality, if you will, that stay kind of at our core pretty stable through time. So who I am today in my late 30s uh, was the person I was in, in process when I was five and who I'm going to be when I'm 80, right? Like that, I think there's enough of a stability through time 
Because if you don't have that, then you don't have you. You just have this like, you know, metamorphosizing of a organism of sorts. And that's not to say we don't change. We do obviously change and adapt and evolve, but I think there needs to be enough core elements to say, this is who this unique individual is. Uh, And people disagree with that or, 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 or agree with that, but uh, that's kind of where I see just conceptually with the self. What do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, no, I think we're aligned on that, actually. Um, so Galen Strawson is famous for um, what he calls the pearl view of the self, which is really the idea that the self only lasts for three seconds. So there are selves, you're multiple selves in a row, basically like pearls on a string, because in order for you to be a unified self, you need to be able to sort of introspectively grasp all of your experience at once. And people can't do that for longer than three seconds. It's something like that. Um, That may be his sort of phenomenology. It's not mine. Maybe I'm fooling myself, but I have a much more unified sense of my own identity than that. Mm -hmm. And I think there is actually human variation there. So you can't always trust your own inner experience on that question. I mean, one thing I do like to emphasize is that you can agree the self is socially constructed without saying that the self is somehow unreal, you know, or fully fictional, because mm-hmm. there are plenty of things that are socially constructed that are nonetheless real, yeah. right? Um, so, uh, you know, institutions in general are created socially, but they still have really tangible effects mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, in, out there in the world. Um, so I'm not very skeptical. I'm not one of these people who super who thinks there's no, no there there or there's no constant there there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the self endures. But the point that I'd like to make in the book is that, um, you know, it endures, um, but at each point it's being influenced, you know, by, by others and by sure. the relationships mm-hmm. that we have mm-hmm. with individuals. And I think that, you know, we, we, we do need to hang on to that idea rather than see it as somehow um, a solo operation. Yeah. 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 I, I fully agree. So, so for the specifics, I'll, I'll zoom in here. So how do you, as a, as a twin, <laughs> see yourself in terms of selfhood and how you identify as separate? Like, can you ever think about or conceptualize yourself not in relation or in context or in some connection with your twin, especially if you're an identical twin? Um, As an example, uh, I have a younger brother, but I don't think of myself in relation or connection with him. That's just my brother I have out there. Like he's great, but we're, you know, multiple years different. That's one thing, time and whatever. But I don't, I don't, I don't think of myself and how I identify as connected with him. I would right. imagine there's something a little different for twins, especially identical twins. Can you, what's that experience, I guess, for you, like in terms of how you self identify or how you think about your own individuality? Yeah, um, that, that's a great question. I should say, too, that I think there's a lot of diversity in the experience of twinhood, so not all sure. identical twins will feel this sure, way. Sure, but sure. my own experience, um, it, it's interesting. I think I do identify in some ways, or I have in the past, as quite an individualist. You know, I didn't like, I didn't spend very much time thinking about how my own self was closely connected to my sister. Um, it's really only the past few years that I've started to really question, um, you know, what that boundary between us 
is and, and what degree of merger there is there. I had this, I, I mentioned in the book, this amusing experience where we were both in a library together. We had projects we were working on, very tight deadlines. Um, and I suddenly said uh, to her, I'm going to the restroom. Do you want me to go for you too? Like I said, at that moment, I caught myself saying, and I was just, oh my God, what is that? But I had this moment where I felt like that my, you know, bladder was somehow shared with her. So I obviously don't really think that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think that there's a sense in which our self can be shared if you specify that clearly enough. Um, so um, one thing I talk about in the book is is the possibility that twins and again other very close couples can share a mind. Um, not in the sense of ESP. I don't think that twins can communicate in that extra sensory way. Um, but uh, I do think that they kind of use each other's minds or sort of use their own mind outside of their own skull which sounds very mystical, but uh, there was a paper that uh, Andy, um, Andy Clark and David Chalmers mm-hmm. wrote yeah. about 20 years now, um, which talks about the way that a person's mind can extend into external objects. Yeah. Uh, like, say, your phone. You know, your phone, if it's deeply enmeshed in your life, mm-hmm. um, using that to perform certain computational functions is not that different from using your own mm-hmm. uh, brain. Um, so one thing I think that can happen with twins is you sort of, um, your mind can extend into another person mm-hmm. and use that person's mind as part of yours. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of, I think, kind of a non-mystical, but still pretty trippy and cool um, example of something we take to be central to personhood being shared across that boundary. Yeah. So I was going to, you're, you're dovetailing into the other question I had. So yeah, I talked to Andy Clark uh, earlier this year. Um, and he's a lovely person. He's, 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 he's lovely. And, um, and we talked about, uh, his newer book, uh, I'm forgetting the title at the moment, but, um, we talked about a little bit of his work with Chalmers and the extended minds is the, is a, is a concept. And right. He, he explains it. Well, listeners can go and listen to that conversation and give, he'll give you the full download and everything. But, um, I think the, the, core element from what I understand from him and Chalmers and how he's continued to look at this more extensively. This paper came out, I think, in the 90s. Um, right. So it's, you know, probably 25, 30 years old now. But what's kind of been more, uh, you know, kind of at the top of people's minds with this idea of the extended mind is that the mind doesn't live just in your brain, in your head, right? And that yeah. there's, there's an idea that... <clears throat> um, that our mind is connected with our body, right? And for a long time, I think there's some utility for that. Um, you can't study everything at once. So I think at the time there was, there was some utility to, to isolate it. But it was a kind of almost like a regression to like this dualism of like body-mind mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? And – in the in the you know in the in the 90s they they, they had this this paper and they they said look you know the the mind is 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 yes part is in the skull it's in the head but it's it's in your body and using how there's this proximate need to say minds and bodies are a singular unit and they're working in tandem and you know you can go pretty woo woo with that but like i think if you stay pretty solid you're definitely getting at the phenomenological experience. You know, folks like Merleau Ponty was talking about this in the 40s and right. 50s about how the utility of the body is extremely important for understanding one's own experience and then the experience of the other. 
And I think, you know, there's some aspect of cognitive science or neuroscience that is also kind of commiserate with that. They conceptualize it differently of saying like, yes, like bodies and minds are connected. So to that end, when you're talking about this in terms of uh, twins, you know, what is what is your your feelings here of of <laughs> this kind of like, if you will, like a like a kind of special connection, like kind of the example yeah. of, you gave not not telepathy, not anything like that, but like this idea of like, you know, one twin might have a dream and the other twin has a similar dream the next night, or somebody gets an injury or they feel a pain, and someone's like, yeah, I also felt it kind of but like you get these strange kinds of things of like almost this like intuitive kind of sense of stuff, uh, even though you could be miles away. Um, what do you make of this kind of idea of twins having some kind of yeah. special connection that maybe other siblings might have. Yeah, I mean, the st- that stuff is tricky. I mean, I do think that um, twins can share a mind in the sense we were just discussing. They're going to use their mind outside of their skull via someone else's <laughs> brain, I guess. Um, yeah. I also think that twins can share agency. So um, they can, if they cooperate together in a deep way frequently enough, they can create, in a sense, a third agent. It's a kind of plural agent or joint agent mm. beyond their own um, center of agency. Mm. Um, there are some really um, sort of cool examples you can see of twins cooperating in very uh, intense and lifelong ways. Like there's a, a cool pair of twins. They're both artists, um, and they talk about how you know one will work on a painting that they're doing together for you know several hours, then go to sleep, and the other one will continue. They're kind of painting in relay, mm. and you can't tell the difference between the output. It's almost as wow. if they're painting while they sleep. You oh, know? That's wild. So, that's wild. Um, yeah, I think there's just twins who've grown up together, and especially the identical kind. They they know each other's minds and and habits and preferences so well that they can operate in that very smooth, Mm. intuitive way. It's a kind of mode that you can move in and out of. Mm. Um, So I think those things are real and they can feel kind of mystical when you're doing them, but in a way that they're relatively, um, they don't require some sense of, I don't know, suspension of the laws of physics. (laughs) So I I don't go, my sister actually has told me that she does kind of believe in ESP and telepathy. Maybe she's a bit more woo-woo than I am. (laughs) Um, I don't. I think a lot of these cases can be explained by, again, just the fact that twins know each other so well. Yeah. They they can't read each other's minds um, in a spooky way. They just tend to know what's going on mm-hmm. in each other's heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, okay, you know, there'll be coincidences that will um, explain some of that more spooky stuff. So I'm a bit maybe flat-footed about that part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I definitely yeah. think that there's I, – I would agree. I think the more kind of on – that stuff starts to get on thin ice a little bit. But I think the more thick ice more is of this idea that there's obviously a connection with twins, like, you know, being in Euro together. And then if you grow up together and things like that, I mean, if you, if you have um, this way of, of following each other's habits and patterns and behaviors, you're going to kind of have some kind of connection to that of sorts. I always, I always think about the, uh, they're retired now. They retired a couple of years ago. But the the twins that used to play doubles tennis, the Bryan brothers. Um, oh, yeah. And it was crazy because, I mean, I've seen them play. I've seen them practice, you know, up close. I can't tell them apart. I don't know who's who. I can't when I watch <laughs> them. I can't tell who's who. The only way I can tell is that, ironically, one is left-handed and one is right-handed, which is, that's why they won <laughs> like 18, you know, grand slams because it, one reason, I mean, they're very good, but they just, they had this advantage of one's a lefty, one's a righty, and they just, 
it sometimes when they would play, it was almost like a like their brains were synced together on the tennis Whoa. court. It was just like they knew where the other person was going to be, and it was so seamless. And you know, but I don't. I think the the connection there is that you know, I mean, they played together since they were like kids and stuff. But like you'll see other people that play a sport if they play long enough together. You know, players on a football team they they kick the ball you know for you know ten twelve years together and they kind of just know where that they just play they practice right you know whatever. And I think that, um, you know, there's, there's something to that, but I, I, I think, I don't know, maybe that's that kind of, that kind of thing of the, again, the kind of objectifying thing of like, well, well, twins are different. So they must have some weird special kind of like magic or something. And <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably not, but you know, there is, <laughs> there is a, an element of, of, you know, just being in that person's orbit enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel it too. Sometimes I come across as like a very flat-footed, kind of hard-headed Australasian philosopher. You know, we're not super mystical. Um, but I, I have these moments with Julia where I really do feel that she's an extension of myself. They often will sort of surprise me. Um, so, you know, I've talked about the way that twins can share a mind and agency. I think when you do those things very often and regularly, you can also share an identity. It's kind of the third aspect, really. You can really come to integrate um, those shared features into your sense of who you are to the extent the other person feels like an extension of you. Um, and Aristotle talked about a close friend as being a second self in that way. So again, it's not just twins. Montagna talked very movingly about feeling that his sense of self was like closely, very closely tied to his best friend. And when the best friend died, he felt like half of himself had died. You know, I think um, there's a, a really deep version of that um, that um, is, it's an emotional reality. It can't be fully explained, but if you feel it, you feel it. And I've definitely had those experiences with my sister. I have this uh, good friend of mine. <clears throat> he is, we're from different parts of the country. The United States is obviously huge. And he's a little bit older than me. We have kind of different backgrounds. And it's so strange because I politically I've been on both sides of the spectrum here in the U S I've been conservative yeah. at one point. I've been very more progressive liberal and I'm a very happy, moderate liberal now. And, uh, <laughs> um, and it's wild because sometimes he'll send me something and it's exactly how I think about it. Right. And I'll send him something and it's exactly <laughs> how he thinks about it. It to a T on something that is the most, uh, inflammatory sometimes is politics. People argue about politics. They have difference, right. all these things. They'd be on the same side of a political spectrum, but they still in fight and stuff. I, I, I don't, it's a strange thing. We always have this thing of when are we going to disagree? And we won't even do it as like a kind of group thing or something like that. We won't talk sometimes for a couple months and I'll, Hey, did you see this? Like, I'm really feeling this way. He's exactly what I thought. He's exactly yeah, to a T. It's a strange so. thing. It's a strange thing. It's a strange <laughs> thing. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, it, there, so again, I think there's lessons to be learned from twins. I guess the yeah. one final bit on this is kind of what I was saying in the beginning. I guess, I'll just ask you personally because like you said, you know, there's a diversity of, of you know, uh, experiences that twins have. But do you feel like you guys are – in terms of interest and personality and all of these things like very different or do you sometimes be like, man, we're two 
too similar on this. Like we like the same <laughs> shows, the same movies, the same types of food, like, you know, or is it very much like there's some of that, but there's also a lot of like, yeah, I, you know, she likes uh, this type of music and you don't like that at all. You hate it. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Like, what is that kind of like for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, it's strange. In some ways, I think we were more similar when we were growing up because we're spending a lot of time together and we're kind of naturally converging, I guess. Now we've been living in different countries for, um, for about 20 years, uh, so we don't spend as much time together. But I also think, as we are saying earlier, there is this um, kind of binarization that happens with twins when they're growing up. So when we're growing up, in some ways, our difference is about more stark to me. And then when, when I moved to the U.S., she stayed in New Zealand. I was able, I guess, to sort of exercise my Julia parts more frequently. Mm. Um, you know, she was no longer taking up space in the personality spectrum, you know, so I expanded out of it. So in some ways, I think I've become more similar to her mm. um, through not uh, living right now next door to her. Uh, so it's a complicated picture. Huh. Um, but if you have to, I was to try and sum it up, um, I guess we have a lot of the same likes and dislikes when it comes to like, you know, home decor or music or she doesn't read as much as I do. She's more into graphic novels. She's an illustrator. She doesn't read as many kind of, uh, you know, non-illustrated things. Uh -huh. <laughs> but we both like reading, you know, our profession is the same. We're both university professors. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we, yeah, we like the same people and we go on the same vacations, you know, so there's all of that, those sort of in a way, um, I don't know, everyday features. Personality wise, um, we're also quite similar, but there is that big difference that she's much more extroverted than I am. Hmm. Um, so she has a larger social circle. She loves like creating, you know, committees um, and teams. She always collaborates on projects. <laughs> I'm much more of a sort of solo worker mm -hmm. and I get burnt out if I spend too much time hanging out with people. Mm. So that feels like the main enduring difference between us. Mm. I would say she also in the dating realm, she's often dated people who I would say are sort of similar to me mm. personality wise. <laughs> and I don't, yeah, I don't tend to date people who are similar to her. So there's some kind of crossover there. Interesting. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. That's a, yeah. but you know, as, as obviously there's obviously maybe some cultural things cause you've lived here in the States for a while. Does, does she ever kind of, you know, bother you about becoming Americanized or anything like that? Or, you know, you're, 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 you're less, less of a, a New Zealander. <laughs> <laughs> she definitely wishes that I was in New Zealand. She would love me to move back there. Um, but no, I don't get criticized for being like too much of an American. Not by her. Plenty of other New Zealanders have thrown that <laughs> oh, Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> That's funny. Um, uh, okay, so, so there's this interesting chapter about, about love. Right. And I've, yeah. I've thought about this as well. Um, I don't really share this because I, again, I don't want to offend people or anything like that, but I've always wondered about like when somebody, <laughs> if let's say there's uh, uh, twins and yeah. one person <clears throat> uh, is dating somebody that has to be strange. Um, if there's a lot of similarity there physically and then personality wise, right. and it's like, well, I like you. But I don't like your twin like that because even though you guys are literally, you look exactly the same. Like I've always wondered, like how does, I've never had the experience or whatever, but I've always wondered like, what, how does that kind of work? I mean, again, you got twins are, you know, individual people that are different, but there is more similarity than just like, you know, a, a sibling of sorts, uh, uh, you know, like that, yeah. it's not a twin. How, how does, how does in, in the love world, in the romantic world, right. how does that, how does that work? 
Yeah, I mean, what I read, I was reading up about this a little bit. Um, what I've read is it's actually very unusual for um, the partner of one twin to also be attracted to the other twin. Um, it does happen sometimes. There was some tragic tale of, you know, someone's twin turned up to her twin's wedding and hadn't been, you know, around for a while and then the groom and the twin fell in love. You know, like you picked the wrong one. Um, but that is pretty rare. Um, in a way, it's kind of encouraging if you do want to be felt, you know, sort of treated as a distinct individual that somehow it's not really about your superficial physical characteristics. There's some, yeah. we don't want to call it an inner essence, but there's something about your general way of being in the world that, feels distinct enough. Mm. Um, and my own experience has always been like that. Well, maybe, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think in each of the case of Julia's partners, they've never been interested in me. There was one occasion when I was interested in one of hers, but it didn't happen the other way around. <laughs> um, so it's always felt like the partner picks a twin um, mm. and it, it's instant. It's not really mm. um, a question for them. Mm. So yeah, I think that's interesting as, you know, as the target rather than the, the singleton. I don't really have much insight into why that happens, but it seems to be so. Hmm. What, so you, you make this interesting comparison, and I, I don't know how much you want to speak on it in the book, about there's this connection between twins and, and uh, gayness, which is which was a very interesting comparison. I was I, 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 When I read, I try to read things very openly, so I was like, Okay, yeah. where are you taking me? Okay, where, where look, take me on this road. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you. Where, where are you taking me? So, um, what, what did you? How did you kind of like stumble upon this? Um, and 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 what are your kind of thoughts here on this? Yeah, so it sort of it came up because I just started noticing when I was reading all this material about twins, these this odd kind of association between um, gay couples and twins in literature and popular culture. Um, so, uh, for, for one thing, twins are often well. Um, Twins are often assumed to be identical twins, especially women, are often assumed to be attracted to each other, right? There's this kind of fantasy that female identical twins are going to make out um, or, you know, twin cest, as it's called. Mm. So when you think about it, that's a gay scenario, right? You've got a couple of women making out. It's a very common <laughs> common sexual fantasy, apparently. Um, so there's, there's that. Um, on the other side, um, gay couples are often referred, sort of seen as being in some way sort of siblings, like lesbians are often kind of assumed to be sisters. Mm. Um, I read a book of kind of literary theory about twins and the, the guy who was uh, um, about gayness, the guy who wrote it um, claimed that he, he thinks that most gay couples are kind of seen as somehow twinny. Mm. So there's this kind of odd association in both directions. But the thing that really stood out for me was that the ways that uh, gay couples get pathologized are quite similar to the ways that twins get pathologized. Mm. It was really interesting. So, um, Gay couples have often been accused of being kind of narcissistically um, involved, you know, not sort of wanting to take up adult responsibilities as being somehow immature hmm. by virtue of not taking on, you know, the standard heterosexual relationship, marrying, having kids. Hmm. They're often assumed to be sexually deviant, obviously, um, and also kind of mentally unwell, like violent and weird. Hmm. Um, and it's very odd, but twins also have those uh, same kinds of tropes raised about them is a, a weird um, kind of tro horror trope involving twins where they either become very, very obsessed with each other and kind of uh, have a mental meltdown that way or else they become very violent and attack each other and often the end is a like murder or suicide. And again, mm. gay couples, stories about gay couples have often ended mm -hmm. that way. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a strange association um, between the two things. And I tried to get clear in the book on why that might be there. It's suggestive. People don't come straight out and say it, but it felt real to me. Um, and ultimately, the conclusion I came to is that these are two non-normative relationships. Right? They're mm. kind of deviant ways of relating, especially in adulthood. Um, we do have the sense that to be a healthy adult, um, you want to center your life in a kind of single, enduring sexual romantic partnership with someone who's ideally of an opposite gender to you. Um, and twins don't do that if they're still very close in adulthood. Um, so they're in this non-romantic relationship, often with someone of the same gender, mm-hmm. and that just feels kind of odd. Yeah. Um, and I think that society is uncomfortable with it. Yeah, it sounds like what you're describing is kind of the the homogeneity of it, right? It's this sort of sameness, and that the, the you know yeah. literally same sex unions have a homogeneity to them. So it's this like right. intimacy, this closeness. Like I, I mean, again, when I first read it, I said, okay, where are you taking me? And then I said, oh, I get it. I I I, I can see the the argument um, <laughs> about. It is a bit of a stretch at first. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, well, what are, what are, what am I about to read? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it, I got it. I, I mean, I certainly got. That's what stuck out to me. It was like, oh, it's it's another way in which people that don't have that experience. A lot of people don't have experience of being a twin, just like a lot of people don't have the experience of being attracted to people of the same sex. It's different, and so then the homogeneity of it is kind of like, oh, okay, that's the difference. And sure, but I mean that there's also a lot of other things about it that you know aren't different uh, you know, when compared to other types of relationships and things like that. So. It, yeah. is, it is It is. interesting. I guess a, a connected piece of this, I mean, it's not quite the same, but it's in the same world, is, uh, you know, you, you talk about it in the book, so I'll let people read it or you can share whatever you want here. But do you ever feel this, this space of, you know, you're close with your twin, right? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I think people are close to their siblings in general, but, you know, let's just say there's a, there's an, an added layer of closeness. Let's just for the sake of argument say mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, how do you kind of make, you talked about growing up together. You talked about, you know, doing a lot of same things, interests, things like that. How, how does it happen when you start dating and you have less time for your twin, right? Like you guys talk right. or you share things, you have experiences, you travel together, whatever. And when you, when you start dating someone or if you're married to someone or whatever, you have less time for your twin and that's a special connected relationship that has to feel maybe in some ways obstructive and other ways it has to feel like a kind of mini loss. How does that, I guess, feel or could it, what are the ideas you have on that, of that dynamic, you know, and, and what that could yeah. be for you or for the twin or, or maybe the other potential partners involved. Does that become again, kind of a obfuscation or, 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 or no, I might make too much of this. No, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think for some twins, it can be really traumatic, right? That, that's a moment where twins do, their lives start to diverge. There's competition, as you're suggesting, in the relationship. You know, we all have limited time. It's kind of a zero-sum game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it can be a really big problem. I didn't really experience it as such with my sister. It didn't feel that um, she dated earlier than I did. Mm. Um, I didn't, I guess I, maybe I felt a little left out sometimes, but I don't recall it as being a traumatic period of my life. 
life. I was very confident in her, her love for me. And I didn't, to be frank, I didn't think that these guys were much competition for me. Right. So I felt that I was still <laughs> at the end of her life. Huh. And I, but I, I mean, one thing, I do think it can be a problem, but I think the problem is partly socially, um, constructed because as I was saying before, we have this idea that if you're going to be a healthy grown-up adult, you need to pair off with a single person um, and make that person, you know, your spouse, ideally the center of your life and then have kids with them. So we have this kind of quite exclusive um, uh, kind of image in our mind. Um, And there isn't very much room for your twin if that's the way you think we need to run social life. Right. So part of what I want to do in the book is say we should kind of we should think about not being so monomaniacal about what a healthy relationship structure is. You know, I'm not poly like polyamorous relationships are the thing these days. So I'm monogamous probably to my grave. But I do think that there's ways of organizing your kind of network of relationships where one of them doesn't have to take up so much space Mm. that you have to leave others behind, Mm. you know, when the romantic partner comes along. Mm. Yeah, that's, I think that's particularly instructive. I think that there's a, you know, I think as we've been talking about much of this, you know, I think it's, you know, you've rightly stated that there's some general things you can say about, you know, the idea of twins and what that's like. But, you know, I think every uh, 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 folks that are part of a, a, a twinship are going to have a different experience. They're going to have a, you know, this is your experience, but you could, you know, line up a pair of twins, you know, the six set of twins or whatever, and they're all going to have a different experience individually. And then as a, as siblings. And, um, I think that that, that's also super interesting, right? That's super interesting and and important to, to kind of recognize for, for, for twins, but also that's how it is for individuals generally. Um, so I guess the, one of the last points you mentioned uh, uh, in the last chapter, or one of the last chapters in the book is, and we've been kind of touching on this throughout the conversation, is this notion of objectification, right? Of sometimes people can, because twins aren't as common or whatever, people can in some ways and maybe in, in uh, uh, subtle ways or not so subtle ways, objectify twins. And I sometimes I think that... Um, you know, sometimes, I mean, I, I probably have at certain points purely out of ignorance because <laughs> I don't, I don't know a whole lot. Right. So, um, so I think right. that there's a, there's a thing out of ignorance, which people should, you know, obviously do their best to educate themselves on. But, um, uh, you know, but sometimes it can be maybe more malicious or nefarious or things like that. Talk about this, this theme of objectification of twins but then also how that points to how we see objectification in the world in a, in a, in a, in a negative way um, and, and what some of those kind of uh, principles we can, we can understand from this idea of, of, of twins. Yeah, um, so there are sort of many diff- objectifications are kind of a complex notion philosophically. There's a bunch of different ways of doing it or modes of it. Um, the two of the main ones... Um, to do with obviously the treating of someone as an object, but also instrumentalization, right? The using of that person. Um, so uh, one way to objectify someone is to focus sort of obsessively on their appearance, right? What you might think of as their kind of superficial features and deny their subjectivity. So treat them as somehow sort of less than fully human. Right? And we see that happen with women, obviously. You know, when women are walking down the street and people are like catcalling them, focusing very much on what they look like. Um, that's something that, you know, we get with twins 
twins too, right? People are obsessed with what twins look like. So twins too, especially when they're very similar um, and young walking down the street, are constantly getting people stopping them, pointing to them, trying to work out what the differences are, being quite invasive, you know, sort of like jabbing a finger in our face and saying, you know, your nose is smaller than hers, you know, the sort of behavior you wouldn't expect to do to a human you don't know. So there's an obsessive focus on superficial or physical features. Um, And then there's the instrumentalization mode, uh, the use of um, someone for your own purposes. And you get that obviously with women too. Um, They're used in multiple ways in advertising to sell products, you know, (laughs) for the gratification and benefit of others. Uh, And again, that happens with twins, not to the same degree. It's not as troubling. Twins aren't like an oppressed group. Um, But you see twins being used to sell things, you know, if it's anything that has two parts to it, if it's like twin ovens or twin engines or a twin set, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. obviously. But also unrelated products or products you need a control, you know, so one twin uses the cream and the other one doesn't look at them both now. Mm-hmm. So twins are often used that way mm-hmm. and also used in science. Obviously, they're used yeah. in twin studies to do a lot of work um, and in entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's interesting you see these parallels between twins um, and women. It's obviously not as troubling most of the time in the case of twins. So I think twins are kind of useful because they can help us narrow in on which parts of the whole objectification phenomenon really are the problem. Um, and also get at this question that arises for both twins and women, which is, is, is objectification any less troubling when the person being objectified is actively participating in it? You know, twins often kind of pimp themselves out, right? They're on shows. <laughs> like they, they participate in reality TV shows featuring twins or they're selling their labor in advertisements. And women do that too. So, uh, you know, should we think it's somehow less of a problem if they're involved in it that way? That's a good question. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's a tough question. That's a good question. <laughs> so I have my initial answer, but I'm 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 arguing <laughs> with myself in my head. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say, I would say that there's a a kind of general aspect of a kind of neutralized element of objectification. We see that as a negative, right? And in right. and in many times, it is a negative. But I don't think inherently it is. I think it yeah. certainly is majority of the time. I think it, 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 you know, and so there's something, you know, maybe it is or isn't appropriate to think about it mostly negative. I, you know, people can fight about that. But I think inherently probably not. I think people do this, I guess, with power. They do this with discrimination. They do this. And many times those have, uh, in the majority, a lot of uh, negative uh, connotations. Right. But I think inherently power is not a good or a bad thing. I don't think discrimination is a good or a bad thing. When I say discrimination, I mean, um, you know, the ability to tell one thing from the other, to discriminate. Like, right. I, you know, this is uh, a hamburger and this is uh, a ham sandwich or something, right? I have to discriminate right. between, you know, I mean, in that sense. Um, so I think with objectification, I think that there are probably ways in which we we do that and we find that socially acceptable. I don't personally find the social acceptable pieces a convincing argument though. Um, I think that changes through time. I think that changes with culture. I think that changes with society. So one clear example of this is 
I mean, to be very honest, um, most dating apps are literally instant, <laughs> instantiated with, I see somebody, they're hot or they're not, and I swipe one way or the other. That's literally objectifying, literally, right? No one's reading the bio. No one's reading like what other things are there. I mean, at some point you might get there, but initially it's a snap judgment. You're objectifying hot or not. Again, that's super subjective. And sure, you might then go for it. But then it's like, are you really reading and taking honestly what somebody puts in a dating profile, because all of those start to sound the same if you're on those apps long enough. So it's like, okay. And so even when you get to the first date, I would imagine you're, you know, you can take it off the the app side of things. If you're dating somebody the first time, you're trying to check them out to say, okay, do they match up with how they sold themselves, right? Or okay. how they appear in my mind. Yes, they do. No, they don't. I'm discriminating between that. Okay, they do look super hot. Wow, they look much better than I thought. Or they look terrible, much worse than I thought. You are objectifying them. You, there's no way for you to know their personality or their temperament or things like that until you spend time with them and get to know them. And even then, it takes a long time to get to know someone. So I think in that way, that's not necessarily a negative thing. Um, yeah, I totally I, agree with you about that. I mean, I was talking to my young niece about this and she was like, I, I was like, I'm thinking about objectification. She was like, what is that? And I said, well, it's treating someone as an object. And she's like, well, you know, we are objects. Why is it wrong to treat someone as the thing that they are? You know, she's a very smart little kid. Yeah, yeah that's, um, that's a good answer. And, but, it, but it's true. And like, it, it's, it's odd to suggest that somehow attending to someone's physical characteristics is inappropriate when you know, our physical characteristics are a big part of who we are. So there's nothing inherently bad about attending to those things. I think when objectification becomes more troubling is obviously, you know, when that's all that you're attending to, you're not also acknowledging someone's, someone as a sort of like free and equal being or however you want to um, cash that out. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Or if it's it's a primary focus or a central focus or things like that, or if it's a kind of enduring focus. So Martin yeah, Nussbaum yeah. said, actually, it's fine to treat someone purely as an object, for instance, in sex. People are doing that, you know, mm-hmm, frequently. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it can't, it, you, you want that to be within the context of a relationship that also, you know, involves kind of symmetry and equal exchange and, you know, respect in other ways. Um, so you can't really tell whether something's problematically objectifying till you see it in the broader context mm-hmm. of how these people are related. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful rather than saying straight up that it's an essentially moralized notion, being more um, careful about which instances you point to as being troubling. Firmly agree with you. Um, And this is definitely a tangent, but this is why I have a really big um, kind of allergy to many of these reality shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and Love Island and all of these just nonsensical shows that are reality TV, which, you know, it's, I don't know how something's reality based if there's like 16 cameras in your face. I, I can't, I can't, I'm not the audience that gets sold to this stuff. I'm not the target audience, right? Cause I just can't, I'm too literal with it. But I do think generally those types of things and those types of shows have a, a heavy hand on the objectification, right? Oh, let's throw a bunch of strangers in there and we're going to hang, they're going to hang out for eight weeks or whatever it is. And sure you get to know somebody superficially, but like much of it is a lot of initial 
you're hot, you've got a great body. And like, there's nothing wrong with those thoughts or thinking that. I mean, in some ways those are, you know, that's old evolutionary code in some ways, sense. It's fine, but it, it does seem to be highlighted, emphasized, underlined. And I worry about people that consume those types of shows or, or things like that. Aside from it being very shallow and vapid, this creating this kind of culture where we're sending mixed signals, right? We're sending mixed information of, okay, yeah, and people get very involved in this stuff. But I don't think as in, in building a culture that that's edifying for, I definitely I don't think for young girls or, or, or for for dudes and how people are, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I think- yeah, no, totally. I mean, you might think, okay, this particular instance of objectification between these two people might be fine. Maybe it is sort of like balanced in certain ways. We don't know. But you also have to think about third parties, right? When this stuff is being done yeah. in that um, public manner, if you're a, you know, young woman in particular and you see people, women being physically objectified, their feature, physical features dominating everything, you know, in the media constantly, that has an effect on how you see yourself and how other course, people see you. Course, so. Yeah. In a much more sort of minor way, I sometimes get irritated when I see twins kind of self-objectifying because mm. I'm thinking, okay, you can do that. You've got a right to sell your own labor and do your own thing. But it's kind of irritating if they're reinforcing problematic stereotypes about twins that end up making the rest of us, you know, um, have a bad time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a new uh, reality TV show I just heard about called Twin Love, which is about twins. They're, they're uh, breaking uh-huh. up pairs of, I think I have to remember the details. I think there's like 12 pairs of twins. They split them up into separate houses and see what happens. Um, so <laughs> it's what oh my, my friend, my, my sister rather calls <laughs> twin intersectionality. When you have sort of like the objectification of twins lining up with the objectification of women, it's a pretty potent combination. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, I, 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 my thing is people should not give this stuff an audience or viewership. But, you know, of course, that's going to be a novel show that people are going to be extremely interested in because of that intersection of sorts. So, it, it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's not good. One other quick thing I, I wanted to ask you is what happens when you have I don't know if this is your experience, but you have you have a twin, but then you have other siblings that aren't twins and what is that experience kind of like, or what are ideas about that of like certain aspects of jealousy or connectedness or not, or I can't remember if you bring it up in the book, but uh, I was curious about that. Yeah, I didn't. I don't have another twin. So my parents was the seventies. My mother didn't get a scan. She thought she was having one kid. She was going to have this midwife home birth, and then suddenly the midwife was like, "Wait, it is sick, and we've got to go to the hospital." <laughs> so we were a surprise, and I think my parents were like, "Oh God, that's enough," and that was it. So um, no sibling. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know what that's like. I have read a little bit about it. Often the the sibling feels left out because twins are like these little mini celebrities. All the attention yeah. goes to the twin. Yeah. Um, so if the sibling was there first, they can feel like they've been supplanted mm-hmm. or just be sort of, yeah, sort of sidelined in the family. So I think that can be rough. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I don't really know. I don't know about it from a personal point of view. Mm. I do know that um, the, you know, the birth of twins is often a very stressful event in a family. Mm. Um, it's financially a big burden. It's obviously exhausting to raise mm-hmm. twins, especially if you have other kids. So it can place a lot of pressure on the whole family unit. Mm. The, the rates of divorce of parents of twins are higher than the parents of non-twins. And also, like, very, very sadly, um, 
twins have a higher rate of, of uh, abuse to child mm. abuse because there's just so much going on in the family. And mm. I think if there are existing problems, they get worsened. Mm. Uh, so I think it's not maybe not great being a sibling of twins. I'm not sure. Um, mm. But yeah, I think you'd have to ask someone else about that. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's very interesting how that works. So Ooh. the... The, the last question I have for you is, is that, um, you know, the book for me is, is great because, you know, you're using the kind of example um, of, of your, your own experience and just the idea of, of twins uh, to just for us as humans, think about how we view personhood, the self, identity, all these things. Objectification is in there. It's, 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 another, it's a, another way of looking at uh, themes or things we think about often. So with all of these ideas that you've shared with twins and your experience, how do you think this just lar- largely applies to, to humans and what can, we, what can we learn and best interact with, with twins in a general sense that, that can be you know, useful and productive and respectful? Yeah, um, that's Yeah. <laughs> My publisher was like, you should do a little magazine piece where you give sort of singleton etiquette tips. <laughs> you know, singletons could sort of treat twins better. Um, <laughs> and that has not come out yet. Um, I do think there's, I mean, the main theme of the book, um, I guess, is the one that I started with, which is this idea that we've got this kind of vision, especially in Western cultures. It's the sort of vision that arose in the, um, with the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, the Romantic Movement in Europe, this idea that individuals, uh, whether humans ought to be um, you know, highly individualistic, that they, the best, you know, life for a human is to be uh, wrapped up solo, you know, in your own skin um, and interact with others, but in more of a transactional way, always retain your own sense of an autonomous uh, being. Um, and I think that obviously has its benefits. It's important to be autonomous. We don't want people dominating each other in problematic ways. Um, but I think we can take it too far and see forms of connection and mutuality and dependence as unhealthy when actually they're a really important part of the social nature of humans. So I think if there's a big sort of take-home theme of the book, it's that one, um, that twins can help us see um, the beauty and in general just the good features of being uh, closely enmeshed with someone and be a little less afraid of what that involves. Um, so I guess that's my uh, main suggestion, sort of individual suggestions in each of the chapters, but that theme is something that comes up repeatedly. The book kind of coheres around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. The book is called How to Be uh, Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. Uh, is there anywhere or any place that you want to, aside from the book, that you want to point people to or you, yourself or anything, anything you want to point people to? Um. Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, Not really. Um, (laughs) I think in general, part of what I see this book as being is one in a line of um, books written by philosophers over the past few years that combine theory with Mm -hmm. um, autobiographical narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's some definitely other books in that genre that I love that I might point to. Um, One is Free by Leia Ippi. She's a Albanian, rather, political theorist Mm. um, who talks about um, capitalism and Mm. communism in Albania combined with her own life. Mm. Um, And there's also a book by Chloe Cooper-Jones, who's another philosophy professor called Easy beauty, Mm. um, which is fabulous. It's about disability and about um, ideals of um, what it is, what what is beautiful, Mm. um, told through her own kind of adventures Mm. as someone with a a serious spinal condition. Mm. Um, So I would definitely recommend those two books if readers are interested in what you might call autobiographical philosophy. Oh, very nice. That's very, very nice. 
Well, this was absolutely wonderful. I really enjoyed the the conversation with you. It was it was such a delight, and I'm I'm very happy you came on and, and share with us your experiences and all of your wonderful ideas. So, so a big, big, big thanks. Thanks so much. It was really fun to talk with you. Yes, absolutely.